Good morning and welcome to another episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your editor, Bryce. And I'm your co-host, Erica. And today I'm going to be telling you guys about serial killer Ed Kemper. So pour yourselves a strong cup of joe and let's dive in. Ed Kemper was born as Edmund Kemper on December 18, 1948, in Burbank, California. He was born to Edmund Emil and Clarnell Kemper. He had two sisters. One was older than him and one was younger than him. And in 1957, his parents divorced. And so at that point, he moved with his mom and his two sisters to Montana. And at this point, his father moved out of the area. Ed's mom was an alcoholic, and she was constantly criticizing Ed and would blame him for all of her problems. They honestly had a really terrible relationship, and when Ed was about 10 years old, his mom tried to force him to live in the basement with the door locked because she was worried that he might physically or sexually harm one of his sisters. It was later discovered that Clarnell suffered from bipolar disorder, and it's theorized that that could have caused all of her moments of abuse and raging. So when Ed was a child, he would play with his sisters like Barbie dolls and baby dolls, and he thought it was a fun game to just cut their heads off. And then he would act out weird sexual rituals with the dolls. He would also play a game with his sisters called Gas Chamber, and they would blindfold him and then lead him to a chair where they would pretend to put him to death and he would pretend to die in extreme pain, where he would like ride around in pain. He also once said that he wanted to kiss his second grade teacher because he had a crush on her, but he said that in order to do that, he would have to kill her. And then at age 10, Ed committed one of his first acts of violence, and he ended up murdering one of the family cats by burying it alive. And then at age 13, he killed a second family cat by using a knife. So at that point, he ran off because his mom was, you know, obviously unhappy about the decisions that he was making. And so he ran away and went to live with his dad, but his dad really didn't want anything to do with him and sent him back to live with his mom after only a very short period of time. And eventually she was also kind of fed up with Ed. And so she sent him to go live with his paternal grandparents in North Fork, California. And their names were Ed and Maud. So given that a lot of his childhood took place throughout the 1960s, it kind of makes me wonder what potential influences he may have had to have started this kind of behavior because there was a much more limited supply of types of entertainment that you could watch or, I mean, there weren't, obviously there weren't video games, there wasn't the internet. There was a lot of things that could influence a kid now to maybe see things that their parents didn't want them to. So outside of all those things, the only other potential influence that I could think of was the mother and some of her behavior influencing him but there still seems to be some kind of disconnect that's causing him to start doing things such as cutting off the heads of these dolls. So the one thing that pops up a lot when you look at Ed or he's been interviewed he brings it up that when he was a child his parents made him either watch or actually go through the act of cutting off a chicken's head And that was when he was really young. And then they forced him to eat the chicken afterwards and like drilled it into his head that he was eating like the pet chicken. So 
he talks about how traumatizing that was to him. And so I think it's kind of connected a lot that maybe he took to cutting off heads of things due to the fact that he had seen the chicken's head be cut off. Well, it's also kind of hard for me to imagine what some of the status quo socially was in the 60s, given that I was born in the mid 90s. But I mean, I can imagine there were times where people fall more into social norms a little bit more frequently back then. So boys are being raised to be less emotional and more on just you just have to do what you have to do to raise a family quote manly things so i could imagine there's situations in a family where the dad could be like now it doesn't really matter how you feel these are the things you have to do as a man like that whole type of scenario i could imagine being at least more common than nowadays yeah i agree i mean things back then were obviously a lot different than they are now and i don't know exactly what that situation would have been like but i know that in a lot of like i said interviews he tries to connect it back to that being kind of a diagram of the way that life should be and that it was okay to cut the heads off of things depending on your standpoint i mean typically people believe that cutting the head off of a chicken is a lot different than cutting the head off of other things but that could have been why he decided to cut the heads off of you know, dolls, and why he decided to torture the family cats. It's also sometimes a bit difficult to think about what what is going to go through a kid's head when you're teaching him a lesson about something. So even though to the parent's perspective, it may have been, this is the harsh reality of life, things die, sometimes we need to kill stuff to get food, so let me just put it right in front of you and show you what life is like, but to the kid, he may not be at least it may not be, you know, solidifying in his brain in that in that way so that years down the road all he's really thinking about was the fact that he saw something get its head cut off and everybody in that scenario thought it was normal and didn't really react to it in any specific way and so that the I mean a kid's brain could take that as as far as it could so who knows Yeah and I mean due to all these activities and everything that were occurring and the way that he was acting he was sent to live with his grandparents in North Fork California So it was his paternal grandparents named Ed and Maude Kemper. So Ed lived with them for a little while, and he was really big into firearms. He had brought a rifle with him when he went to live with his grandparents, but he was really into killing birds and other animals. I didn't really find exactly what other animals it was, but I'm sure you can imagine. And so his grandparents ended up taking the rifle away because they're like, you can't just go around killing all these animals. And I mean, at this point, he's a teenager. He's going through all this stuff. He's not with his parents. He's with his grandparents because basically his parents had kind of given up on him at this point, I think is how he'd felt. And so he decided that he needed to find a way to take out some of his anger. And on August 27th, 1964, at 15 years old, he decided to take out his anger on his grandparents. So his grandmother was in the kitchen And he went in there and had a conversation with her, started some sort of argument, and then grabbed his grandpa's 22 caliber rifle and then shot her, resulting in her death. And then he waited for his grandpa to come home from grocery shopping. And as soon as he arrived, he went out to the car and then shot him and then hit his body. He felt some sort of guilt or something at this point. And so he called his mom and said, I just killed grandma and grandpa and she told him to call the police and tell them what had happened. And that's exactly what he did. That's an interesting complex that's now happening where, and there's two different types of people who kill, you know, those who 
end up feeling remorse and those who don't. So I'm curious how that line gets drawn mentally or psychologically. What like what really causes that? Um, it may just be because he did it out of rage, and you know there was enough rage, and he already had this idea of some things being okay to kill. So like maybe that's all it took for that line to be crossed. But I'm curious then what's the difference between that and people who kill with no remorse? I think that line's probably drawn around when they're doing it for pleasure or for fun and not just out of rage. I think that's the only difference I can think of. So he pretty much, which I mean, if you guys are listening to this episode, I'm assuming there's a good chance you already probably know about Ed Kemper a little bit. And I introed it by saying he was a serial killer. So he kind of claimed that he would kind of separate himself a little bit and almost kind of black out and during these rage moments where he would kill people. And then afterwards, he would start to feel bad. And it was almost like he was having this internal battle of, I don't want to kill them, but there's this other side of me that wants to kill them, and I can't fight this other side of me. It was kind of, if you want to look at it like a Jekyll and Hyde situation, that would be, the, I think, the best explanation. Well, I am I always wonder when people are saying that, how much they mean it literally about blacking out and not being able to in the moment to be able to do anything about it. I wonder how much of that is them being factual and serious or how much of that is after the fact remorse setting in and emotionally feeling so distant from what they just did that they kind of just want to say or want to feel like they didn't have any control because now they're feeling bad. I'm curious what actually goes on and how much of it is them trying to just separate themselves so that they can maybe even just feel less responsibility. And that's kind of what I'm going to go into at this point. So obviously, he admitted to this crime, admitted to murder, and so he is arrested. And he's taken into this California Youth Authority, and they put him through a whole bunch of tests. And they kind of interview him in regards to everything. And he said that he killed his grandmother because he, quote, wanted to see what it felt like. And then he killed his grandfather so that he wouldn't have to see that his wife was murdered and go through that traumatic experience. So right there, we're kind of seeing a very weird sort of, he wanted to kill his grandmother because he had some anger in him and he wanted to know what it felt like. But then he, quote unquote, according to him, felt a little bad about it and didn't want to put his grandfather through a trauma. So he killed him to kind of put him out of his misery, almost. He felt like he was doing him a favor. Well, it shows that there's some sort of emotional disconnect between him and the absoluteness and the severity of what killing a person means, which probably draws a lot back to his childhood with the chicken, sort of shown how common and even how normal death is, that it's now almost become part of his toolkit of problem solving. I think, yeah, I think he was definitely having a hard time differentiating between kind of what reality would be in the sense of right and wrong and what was going on inside of him. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. 
So while he was at this youth authority, like I said, they put him through a lot of tests and they ended up finding that he had a very high IQ that I saw a couple different numbers. I saw that his IQ was 136 and I saw that it was 145. But either way, it's typically considered a score of 116 or higher is above average and then 130 or more is within the top 2%. So regardless of whether or not he fell at the 136 or the 145, he was in the top 2%. But they also discovered that he suffered from paranoid schizophrenia, which would include delusions and hallucinations. And a little bit of a definition of paranoid schizophrenia says that, quote, these debilitating symptoms blur the line between what is real and what isn't, making it difficult for the person to lead a typical life, end quote. So this would kind of be where he would be saying, you know, I'm going through these moments where this is what I believe is occurring and this is what I believe is right, that I should murder these people. But then I'm kind of coming out of this delusion and I'm realizing that what I did was actually wrong. And it was at this point that he was sent to Atascadero State Hospital in California. And this is a maximum security facility for mentally ill convicts. So at this hospital, he ended up becoming friends with the psychologist that he was seeing and eventually worked his way into becoming the assistant for the psychologist. And it's speculated that because he had such a high IQ, he was able to manipulate people to do whatever he wanted or to believe whatever it was that he wanted. That's typically referred to as social engineering and a branch of that neurolinguistics programming, which comes pretty naturally to people that are narcissistic and intelligent and have some sort of background or at least natural understanding of psychology. I think that people like Israel Keys and Ted Bundy would somewhat fall into that category because they knew how to come across as charming and nice to gain people's trust immediately. So it's interesting to see these all these parallels drawn between people that have this thing in common, which is murder. It is really interesting. It's also really scary to think about all these serial killers that are out there with these high IQs that are able to do that and to convince people to believe whatever it is they want them to believe. And that's why they can get away with things for such a long period of time. And Ed really knew how to use that. And he was able to get the psychologist to trust him enough that he was able to access the tests that were done on other prisoners and to access their files, which I just feel like is such a big no-no like i feel like that breaks every rule for hipaa or anything but somehow he was able to access all of this and he was able to kind of convince the doctor to let him go and he was released from the state hospital in 1969 at 21 years old after only spending a few years there when he was released from the prison his doctors and psychologists recommended that he didn't go back and live with his mom because when they were discussing things with him and talking to him and going through therapy they discovered that a lot of his psychological issues were triggered by his mom and the abuse that she'd put him through in the past but it was really up to him what he did and he decided to go and live with her in santa cruz california While he was living in Santa Cruz, he went to community college for a little bit and then worked at some random jobs in the area for short periods of time. And then in 1971, he officially started working for the Department of Transportation as more of a long-term job. When he was in the process of applying for a job, though, he had applied for a job as a state trooper, but they didn't hire him due to his size. 
because at this time he was about six foot nine inches tall and weighed about 300 pounds however with applying for this job and going through that process he did make some friends with different police officers in the area and somehow he convinced one of them to give him a training school badge and handcuffs and another one of the officers let him borrow a gun he also drove a vehicle that looked really similar to a police car so clearly wanting to play some sort of undercover cop type of scenario seems like Absolutely. I mean, we've talked about it. He was very manipulative. He wanted people to believe whatever it was that he wanted to them to. In 1971, this was the same year that he had started working for the Department of Transportation. And he was out just on a private drive on his motorcycle and ended up getting hit by a car. And his arm was really badly injured in the accident. So he received $15,000 in the civil suit that he filed against the car's driver. And with this money, he ended up buying a new car. But he was out of work for a little while due to his injuries. So he decided he needed to find something else to entertain him for a little bit. And he noticed a large number of young women hitchhiking in the area. So he kind of stocked his car up with some quote unquote tools. So he put a gun in there, a knife and handcuffs. And the gun that he put in there was like taped under the driver's side seat so that he could very easily access it. For a long while, he was just doing just that. He was picking hitchhikers up, taking them to their destination, and dropping them off. But on May 5th, 1972, he offered a ride to Marion Pesque and Anita Luchessa. And these were some Fresno State students. And pretty quickly after, they were both reported missing. However, there was no information about what had happened to them until August 15th when somebody happened to find a female head in the woods and this was later identified as Marianne. They never were able to find any of Anita's remains and an Ed's statement in regards to this after he was caught was that he had stabbed and strangled Marianne and then stabbed Anita and then took them back to his apartment, removed their heads and hands, and then raped them. Then again, on September 14th, 1972, Ed picked up a 15-year-old hitchhiker named Aiko Koo, and she was on the way home from dance class, but decided that she didn't want to wait for the bus, so she was just going to hitchhike. And Ed picked her up, and he did the same thing to her body as well. These kind of things may seem bizarre nowadays in 2021, but thinking back to the early 70s, I can imagine that the idea of stranger danger was not nearly as prevalent and there was just a lot more like small town feel and community and those types of things because well people sort of had to because there weren't so many distractions like there are nowadays like technology so it it seems a little weird hearing this and thinking i would never do that but i'm sure you would have in the 70s yeah the more that media gets more popular and that social media becomes more of a thing this stuff is like shared all over, you know, look out for this, look out for that stranger danger. Don't ever get in this vehicle. Look out for somebody hiding under your car. All of these things that were not nearly as prevalent in the seventies. And a lot of people just kind of had that mindset that nothing bad could ever happen to them. And they just kind of assumed everybody was a decent human being on January 8th, 1973. Ed picked up another hitchhiker named Cindy Shaw, and he ended up shooting her, resulting in her death. But then he waited until his mom wasn't home, because remember, he's still living with her. 
And then he took Cindy to his mom's house, hid his body in his closet in his room for a day. And the next day he dismembered her through pieces of her into the ocean, but buried her head in his mom's backyard. On February 5th, 1973, Ed went to the University of California, which was where his mom was working, and he was able to use her campus parking sticker and put it on his car, making it look like he belonged with the campus. And he ended up offering a ride to two students named Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu. And shortly after he picked them up, he murdered them both by shooting them and somehow drove past campus security with both the girls in the back of his car. Once he was off campus, he decapitated both of them, dismembered their bodies, removed the bullets from the heads, and then disposed of their body parts in multiple locations. And in March sometime, the some hikers found pieces of the remains near Highway 1. I'm assuming that a lot of the knowledge about these murders and these dates comes after the fact of hearing testimonies from him talking in the past about things he's done is that right yeah a lot of this comes from him and from his interviews i mean obviously they were able to piece parts of it together but the majority of it did come from ed himself so what i'm curious about is at what point and i wonder if he ever gives any context to this is at what point did he go from doing something out of a fit of rage and then being remorseful to what seems like premeditated events that he's doing just because he can and maybe he likes it at this point does he ever give context to when that happened or why so yeah he actually talks about how he was constantly trying to figure out how to stop doing this and he felt like he was having an internal battle there were multiple cases and i I didn't have all of their names or all the details but there were multiple times where he would pick up women and then he would actually just drop them off in between these murders so sometimes he would pick these girls up and he would kill them and sometimes he wouldn't it really just depended on i guess where his emotions were that day what his head was thinking and really what he was feeling like for the day well and again essentially just playing devil's advocate and because i find it difficult to believe people who kill is i'm wondering if he was trying to speak on his behalf in a way that made him seem not so evil as like this isn't a true inherent evil in his mind, but more of a something that he struggles with just to make it seem, you know, not quite that bad on his part. It could be that the reason he didn't kill women sometimes was the opportunity didn't arise or there were too many people around when he got to the location or all sorts of things. So I don't know that I necessarily believe that it's to the extent that he says that it's some blackout voice in his head he can't control until after the fact. I don't know if I really believe that very much. Because it also seems to me like if you really have this problem and you want to stop, why do you keep putting yourself intentionally in the situations that you could keep doing it? Why are you picking up more people? Like, let's say you've killed three people in a row, giving them rides, and you, quote, want to stop. Why are you still giving people rides? Admit yourself back into a place if you really care about not doing this stuff. I'm really glad you went there because that is exactly what he did. He said, I'm going to stop with these crimes. But before he stopped, he had one last crime that he wanted to commit. And he knew that this would be the end. On April 21st, 1973, he was going to commit his most personal murder. And so he drives over to his mom's house and walks into her bedroom and kind of has a little bit of a conversation with her. They have an argument and he ends up attacking her. 
he hits her in the head with a hammer and then cuts her throat with a knife, decapitating her, and then cut off her hands like he'd done in the past. He then raped her body and used her head as a dartboard. He also then removed her larynx and put it down the garbage disposal. He then hid her body and called his mom's friend Sally Hallett and asked her to come over. When she got there, he strangled her and hid her body in a closet. And that was, he decided really the end. He's like, I, you know, I killed my mom. That was what I needed. I'm done. And so he started heading to Pueblo, Colorado. And so on April 23rd, which was two days later, he calls the Santa Cruz police and confesses to his crimes and says, look, it was me. On April 24th, 1973, he was arrested. And when the police first brought him in, they didn't believe him because there was this killer that they had known about. There were two serial killers active at the time when he was. It was him and one other guy. And they both had names that the public and police had come up with for them. And his was the co-ed killer. And so the police, I mean, they knew him. Some of them were friends with him. And they're like, you couldn't have been this person that's committing these awful crimes. You can't be the co-ed killer. But he was able to give a lot of details and descriptions and I mean, all the stuff that I just gave you, the majority of that came from Ed. And they were like, oh, this is, you are the co-ed killer. Before we get a little bit further into this, I'm always curious why there seems to be some sort of direct link between killing people, especially serial killers, and sexual acts. Why is there some sort of direct link between the two? Because a lot of the stories we tell involve somebody getting killed or dismembered and then the murderer doing some sort of sexual act with the body clearly the pleasure element is there in the killing if with dead body parts in front of you you can get yourself to the point that you can be aroused it's it's a strange disconnect but it seems to happen terribly often i don't know what that psychology is or where it comes from so in some of the cases a lot of people say that they struggle with feeling the arousal in other situations and this is the only way that they can feel it for ed himself in a book that i read about him he and police were talking about the fact that he struggled with communicating with females in a proper way and so he wasn't sure how to actually engage in sexual activity with them and this was the only way that he could do it was with them basically unconscious deceased they also kind of talk a lot about which i thought was really strange the fact that he had small genitalia and this was something that he was kind of ashamed about and something that he didn't really want to share with people that were unfortunately alive to see it and it sounds so terrible to say it like that but i think we've seen it with other serial killers where they struggle with connecting with people enough that this is the only way that they feel like they can actually be satisfied is taking out some of the embarrassment and the shame by doing it with somebody who can't react in that way. Okay, so I'm going to play a couple clips for you guys from an interview that Ed did in 1984. These are all going to be in relation to the crimes, and then we're going to play each clip and then kind of discuss it. Well, I'm not an expert. I'm not an authority. I'm someone who has been a murderer for almost 20 years. Can you say how many people might be doing crimes like you were doing it would be a guess but it's not it's far more than 35 it isn't that impossible in this society it happens are there more people they didn't give up uh, how he many? she didn't give up i did i came in out of the cold 
And what I'm saying is there are some people who prefer it in the cold. Good people see. A nice guy. Did you like Kemper? I like Kemper. You were able to appear like a ordinary person, non-threatening to... I lived as an ordinary person most of my life, even though I was living a parallel and increasingly sick life, other life. One victim let me back in the car. I locked myself out. She opened the door for me. My gun was under the seat. What in the hell am I doing telling you that? Am I looking, am I, am I a masochist? Am I looking to be tormented further? I'm trying to show you just how awful this got, how commanding these rages got. I was raging inside. There was just incredible energies, positive and negative, uh, depending on a mood that would trigger one or the other. And outside, I looked troubled at times. Other times, I looked moody. Uh, other times, perfectly serene. Not very sane. But again, people weren't even aware of what was happening. Well, he does seem to be well-spoken enough that I could see where some of the intelligence comes in. I could also see how he might come across immediately as just, just an average guy. Might be able to trick you into believing that he's always nice and always calm but it's it's strange watching him talk about himself doing such horrendous things in such a calm manner but it's like he's just compartmentalized it into something small in his brain that he can just talk about and keep himself separate from it which is interesting i just feel like it's really creepy to watch him talk about it with no emotion while also still being like he just seems so full of himself and so like i did this and kind of be proud of me you were involved in the campus because your mother worked there yes i was also involved in killing co-eds because my mother was associated with college work college co-eds women and had had a very strong and violently outspoken position on men for much of my upbringing my mother was a, a sick angry hungry and, and very sad woman I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. And I watched the alcohol increase. I watched her social life drop off. I watched her get bizarre. She had terrible pain from her life, earlier life, her upbringing, uh, a failed marriage with my father. I'm a constant reminder of that failure. I hate to distill it down into such uh, into one word realities like that. There's a lot that leads into that happening, but that is what happened. They represented not what my mother was, but what she liked, what she coveted, what was important to her, and I was destroying it. Why did you actually kill the girls? My frustration, my inability to communicate socially, sexually. I wasn't impotent, but emotionally I was impotent. I was scared to death of failing in male-female relationships. I knew absolutely nothing about that whole area. Even if just sitting down and talking with the young lady, I need to be able to really communicate. And ironically enough, that's why I began picking people up. And I'm picking up young women. And I'm going a little bit farther each time. It's a daring kind of a thing. At first, there wasn't a gun. I'm driving along. We go to a vulnerable place where there aren't people watching, where I could act out. And I say, no, I can't. And then a gun is in the car hidden and this
craving, this awful, raging, eating feeling inside. I could feel it consuming my insides, this fantastic passion. Uh, it was overwhelming me. It was like drugs. It was like alcohol. A little isn't enough. At first it is. And as you adjust to that, psychologically and physically, you take more and more and more. It's the same process. So it finally came down to the thing of, do I dare bring this gun out? Already realizing if that gun comes out, something has to happen. It was going to happen. I didn't see it then, but it was going to happen. I was playing a dangerous game with a loaded gun. It got us all. Well, now we can see that there's at least some amount of restraint that he could employ, but he was at least able to tell when the threshold would be crossed, and knowing that if there was a gun involved, he likely was not able to control himself. So it's, again, interesting to see that there is at least some sort of threshold, and he's at least conscious of these things, and he can talk about them. I like the the insight that we're getting on him. Yeah, I think he was able to really explain to us a lot more than we get from any other serial killers. He was very open about his crimes and how he felt and what he went through. And so it is a really in-depth look kind of at some of the psychology. And, you know, he does blame a lot of it on his mother, which is why he says that his mom needed to be the last one. In that first killing in May of 72, when that gun was pulled out, I launched it out. For, I had it under my leg, out of sight, parallel to my, to my leg in the seat. It was something that had been thought out in fantasy, acted out, felt out hundreds of times before it ever happened. I had just gone through a horrible experience with her roommate stabbing her. And I was in shock because of that. I couldn't believe that it was that way. And I'm walking back there bewildered. I gotta kill her. I can't let her go. She's gonna tell on me. Everybody's gonna get me. She sees the blood on my hands. What are you doing? And she pulled back and she gasped. And I think, whoa, I don't want her to know what happened. I said, your friend got smart with me. She'd been getting really smart with me a lot, but I never hit her. I killed her, but I didn't hit her. I said, your friend got smart with me and I hit her. I think I broke her nose. You better come help. She's about to die. Why, do, why does she have to know that? I couldn't deal with telling her that. And when I attacked her, she didn't at first realize what was happening. It didn't go through. She had very heavy coveralls on. It knocked her right up into the lid of the car, but it didn't pierce the clothing. So it wasn't that swell a knife anyway. I went out and bought a, a pawn shop huge knife. And... Uh, I kept on just mindlessly attacking. She falls back into the trunk. I just killed a young woman. I slammed down the lid of the trunk. She isn't dead, she's dying. And I panicked. I thought, I just locked the car keys in it because I can't find them in my pocket. Oh my God, I locked them in the trunk. I'm kicking on the trunk lid and yanking on it. Oh no, I don't believe this. I started to run and I tripped over the gun that I'd had in my pants that I had totally forgotten was there. I stopped. I said, stop and think. I collected my wits. Check all your pockets. I picked the gun up. I stuck it back in my pants, now remembering I had one. I checked all my pockets, and there's the keys in the back pocket. I never put them in my back pocket. Everyone makes mistakes, and that's what we have to hope for. Again, this is another example of where he draws lines that don't really make a whole lot of sense. Like, for instance, his grandfather, who 
he didn't want him to go through the trauma of his wife dying, so then he just kills him. And in the case of this girl, he didn't want her to know what happened to her friend, so he just kills her. It's like these weird lines of he wants to protect people from some things, but then when it comes to actually killing them, there's no restraint. I also want to say in that clip, in the interview that we're um, playing for you, they have like some different acting. And so if you hear like weird grunting sounds in the background, there was a short clip of a girl in the back of a car during that. So we are going to play the last clip for you guys. And that's when I decided I'm going to murder my mother. I knew a week before she died, I was going to kill her. And she went out to a party. She got soused. She came home, went to sleep. I was woken up by that. I got, came out. I walked up to her bed. She's laying there reading a paperback as many thousands of nights before. And she said, oh, I suppose you're going to want to sit up all night and talk now. Shit. I looked at her. I said, no. I said, good night. And I knew I was going to kill her. You know? And I'm so cold. It's so hard. And that's the first time in 10 years I've looked at it that way. I mean, that intensely, that honestly. It hurts. Because I'm not a lizard. I'm not from under a rock. I came out of her vagina. See? Came out of my mother. And in a rage, I went right back in. For seven years, she said, I haven't had sex with a man because of you, my murderous son. It's one of our arguments. I cut off her head, and, I'm, and I humiliated her corpse. It's there, you know? A sixth young woman dead because of the way she raises her son and the way her son is raised, the way he grows up. And what's her closing words? I suppose you want to sit up all night and talk. God, I, I wish I had. Hmm? Well, I don't have a whole lot left to say. It's just such a traumatic and terrible thing to even think about. The interviews are helpful regardless to at least get an idea of what he's like. I'd recommend watching the interview as well to just see how he composes himself. That sort of helps kind of determine kind of what kind of person he is maybe. But He mentioned something about how he's never really processed the death of his mother quite in the way that he just did in that interview. So there's clearly some some deep remorse that I don't think he's necessarily making up in that moment. But you can tell that there's some sort of legitimate real conflict going on. And the fact that he just has to live with it, it's really troublesome and heartbreaking. Yeah, I don't know if you guys could tell just from the audio, but if you watch the interview, which the link will be in our description, it's the only YouTube video that's in there, but he gets emotional and starts tearing up when he's talking about his mother's death, which is something that's really strange to see in a serial killer that's already been caught. Unless, I mean, he's using it as some manipulative way for people to feel bad for him, which wouldn't be a first, but... He just talks about it so matter-of-factly, though, that he, you know, went in there and he killed his mom. Like, he just knew what he was going to do. In October of 1973, Ed goes to trial and is charged with eight counts of first-degree murder. And then in early November 1973, he was found guilty of all charges. The judge asked him what he thought his punishment should be. And 
Ed said that he thought he should be sentenced to death, but the judge said no and sentenced him to eight concurrent life sentences, which if you aren't aware, concurrent life sentences. So he's serving them all at the same time. So it's really kind of dwindles down. I mean, he's only serving one life sentence. It would just mean that if he was ever able to appeal one of those charges, he would still have, you know, seven others backing it up to ensure that he does serve that life sentence. He was serving his life sentences at California Medical Facility in Vacaville, California, and he is still alive. He would be 73 now, and so he's not been eligible for parole. They have kind of revisited it a couple times, but he's always been denied possibility of parole, and so I believe that he really will end up dying in prison. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. If you would like to support us, go to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. You can also join our Patreon family, where you can get early access to our episodes and exclusive content such as our new Monday minis and a bonus monthly episode for as little as a cup of coffee a month. Donations to our podcast are always greatly appreciated and go into making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. If interested, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you have case suggestions, feel free to reach out through any of our platforms or email at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.